I'd like to welcome you to this uh, Human Rights Defenders discussion. Uh, my name is Jenny Cooper, and I'm very privileged to have two wonderful speakers here with us today. Um, our, our first speaker is Arnold Tsunga, who is a lawyer from Zimbabwe, uh, a very brave lawyer who has continued to do human rights work in that very dangerous situation. Um, he works to defend human rights activists. He himself has been arrested, beaten, uh, held up at gunpoint, um, and he's still he's working for people held in police detention uh, to defend them in court and speak out against the abduction and harassment and arbitrary arrests that are taking place in Zimbabwe. And he was one of the lawyers who helped to persuade the African Commission on Human and People's Rights to publicly condemn the country's human rights conditions. And he's going to be introduced for more up-to-date uh, information on him by a representative from Human Rights Watch, who is Tiseke. I've pronounced your name wrong. Um, Kasambala. Hi, good afternoon. Um, as uh, Jenny has said, my name is Tiseke Kasambala, and I'm a researcher in the Africa Division of Human Rights Watch. Um, I've been working on Zimbabwe for the past three years now, and as many of you may know, um, the crisis in Zimbabwe has been ongoing for the past seven years, and it's a very, very serious crisis. Um, I'll probably allow Arnold to go into further details about the situation in Zimbabwe and what's actually going on, um, and the work that he does in the field. As a researcher for Human Rights Watch, my main responsibility has been to document the violations that have been taking place in the country. But Zimbabwe is a very difficult and complex situation um, because of uh, President Mugabe's ability to influence the, the position of other African leaders um, in terms of what they can say on the situation in the country. And he's been able to get the backing of African leaders. So it makes for a very difficult situation. Not only that, um, the work that we do on the ground um, sometimes puts us at risk in terms of security. And, and in such a situation, having key contacts on the ground like Arnold um, is very, very useful to us. Uh, people like Arnold are the ones who enable us to document the violations that are taking place and to issue or publish the reports that we actually do um, abroad and at uh, international fora. So I'm very pleased and very glad to introduce um, Arnold Tsunga. Thank you. So, so with your collective permission, if, if I can stand. Um, it looks like from the introductions that have already been given, maybe we should just be opening it up to, to questions. I think enough has been said about the things that I've been doing in, in Harare and the perception by Tiseke that I have a lot of courage. Uh, it's, it's, it's nice to, <laughs> to know that because, you know, when you're on the ground and you are doing what you think is necessary for humanity, you, you never really realize that some people elsewhere may place a premium on that type of work and see it as evidence of courage. Sometimes when, when we do what we do, like going to um, military 
installations where people have been detained, human rights defenders have been detained, at the back of your mind you'll be telling yourself that you're being very foolish. Um, but then <clears throat> I think there's something addictive about the type of work where you are consistently operating in a, in a place where there's a lot of adrenaline. But then that feeling of am I doing the right thing, am I being silly, am I being stupid, but looked by someone else, it's pleasing to realize that it can actually be said to be courage. So I'm very privileged to be coming here, <clears throat> and I'm very thankful to Human Rights Watch for this opportunity for us to be discussing. I'm told that this is a time when you have a lot uh, at the university and that usually we don't get such a big crowd to, to be attending to, 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 to functions. I'm also very happy to be seeing a colleague from Zimbabwe seated at the back, Kanokanga. He used to be uh, my senior at the university <coughs> during the time I was still studying to be a lawyer. Um, and speaking about being a law student or studying law, human rights law, I think there is no amount of uh, training that sometimes prepares you for a situation where you have someone who is so desperate to cling on to power. And uh, anyone who becomes dictatorial and clings on to power, usually they have an aversion for separation of powers, for accountability, for the rule of law, and for independence of the judiciary and for independence of the legal profession. And I think all of us have been seeing the images that are coming from Pakistani I'll be very surprised if anyone among us ever thought that learning to be a lawyer would result in a situation where lawyers begin to be brutalized in the manner that the lawyers are being brutalized in Pakistani for no other reason other than that as people of a decent profession, they know the importance of separation of powers, they know the importance of accountability, they know that you need to have these very basic three pillars uh, that must be defining any state and that any erosion of the independence of any of these pillars of the state results in a situation where there is a danger to humanity, where there is a concentration of power. So I think we, when we look at those images, you should then begin to see how privileged I think many of yourselves are in terms of working in societies where there's been a huge investment in some uh, rule of law framework, some system that works, a system that produces the potentiality for yourselves to realize the best in, in yourselves. Um, so Zimbabwe got its independence in 1980. Uh, before then it was a colony um, in a technical sense because in 1965 the Prime Minister then, Ian Smith, made what is referred to as a uni unilateral declaration of independence from, uh, uh, from Britain. And then at that point, there was jurisprudence that was developed, as well as, I think, a finding by the multilateral institutions that the declaration for independence was illegal, and therefore that regime had become an illegal regime. But it was essentially a colonial regime. So in 1980, when we got our independence, that w that's where I got the opportunity to be able to learn in a system of education that would result 
in me becoming a lawyer. Before then, I had absolutely no clue about this issue of that, that they, they, they are there is a profession <laughs> that is referred to as lawyers. In fact, I aspired to be a bus driver because having been born in a rural area where we had no civilization effectively, and I was walking for virtually 10 kilometers to go to school and 10 kilometers to come from school from the time I was six years of age up to the time I was in grade six where I moved from the rural areas to the urban areas. And at that point, the only people that we felt were really, really a symbol of uh, African success were these bus drivers and the conductors. So I really felt at that point that if I can work my way where I can really get to that highest aspiration, that was going to be good. But then after independence, the President Mugabe introduced an integrated system of education. And I think to that extent, he has really been a hero for Africa in terms of investing in human development. But something terribly wrong started happening immediately after independence in 1982 to 87, when he began to see the Ndebele people, especially under the leadership of then Joshua Nkomo, who is late. He was also a liberation uh, fighter. He deployed the army. And the result is that after five years, we had a genocide of uh, between 20 and 25,000 people being killed, primarily because they were coming from Matebeland. And then in 87, there was a constitutional change which resulted in the creation of an executive presidency. Before then, he was a prime minister, and we had a president who was ceremonial. But he then felt that he didn't want even a president above him. So he then combined the prime minister's office and the president's office into what we were referring to as the executive presidency. The executive presidency is the thing that has now given him the authority to centralize power. And with the centralization of power, there has not been effective accountability. So we started seeing an erosion in civil liberties, but we also started seeing a decline generally in the socioeconomic condition in our country, which culminated in 1989 in the formation of an opposition. This opposition, the Movement for Democratic Change, is largely a party that was born out of a labor movement because of the fact that workers were feeling that the socioeconomic decline and the collapse in the economic condition was now resulting in, you know, un in unbearable conditions for, 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 for workers. So as a result, that's how this party was formed. And then he quickly said, this party has been sponsored by the British and the Americans. And he has made a very consistent message through the public media, which is exclusively controlled by the government, that Tony Blair and George Bush are the ones who formed and offered the opposition, and that therefore it reflects the Western agenda. And based on that, he started an expropriation strategy, basically taking property from whites on the basis that they were sponsoring the opposition. That expropriation strategy has now gone to even those blacks who are disliked by the ruling party, but also uh, businesses where the perception is that these businesses are not showing sufficient uh, support for the ruling party. So this system of political patronage where there is expropriation, looting of assets, and then distributing them to people who are seen as politically compliant is something that has driven chaos, and uh, it has really reduced the level of investor confidence. This is why in our country, Currently, industry is operating at 30% of its capacity. We have an unemployment rate of 80%.
We have an inflation rate which is officially said to be at 8,000%, but economists say inflation could be anything in the region of 14,000%. Uh, the Zimbabwean exchange rate, it used to be one Zimbabwean dollar to about 56, one US dollar to about 56 Zimbabwean dollars in 2000. Now it's one US dollar to one million Zimbabwean dollars. There's three to 4,000 people who are dying per week because of a combination of factors, disease, food shortages, hunger, homelessness, joblessness. So I think the list of the tragedy that is unfolding in Zimbabwe can go on and on. Lawyers have found themselves being people who have given a voice to the voiceless, representing human rights defenders and legitimate political opponents. And as a result, we've also become sucked into the process of being seen as the opposition. I used to be in private practice myself, I'm just concluding. And for 14 years, I was in private practice. I only left private practice in 2003 when at one point I had gone to try and represent a client and then soldiers laid ambush, abducted me and tortured me for three hours. When I was leaving the place where I had been tortured, which is a remote area from where I was used to work, that's where I made a decision that we needed to have an institution that looks at the restoration of the rule of law. And that's why I found myself representing, I mean, being the director of Zimbabwe Lawyers for Human Rights, and then looking at working with a group of lawyers to look at how lawyers can use their, their knowledge of law and expertise to equip capacity on the part of ordinary citizens to then be agents for social transformation. So I think I'll end it there. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, we will have time for questions after Mandira Sharma, our next speaker, who is another extremely brave human rights lawyer. I had the privilege of seeing her in Nepal before the People's Movement in April last year, which overthrew the, the, the government at that time. And it was very dangerous to do the kind of work she was also involved in. Um, she recently won a prize from Human Rights Watch for her human rights law work. And um, she's worked on behalf of human rights activists in Nepal, um, publicizing abuses that were committed both by the Nepalese government and by the Maoists during the very long civil war that was raging in Nepal. Um, and she also um, did quite a lot of work focusing on, on children's issues, um, child soldiers, children that were involved in that civil war, um, as well as others. So um, I would like to introduce Mandira Sharma. And first of all, she will be um, spoken about by Sam Zia Zarif. Very nicely done. <laughs> Thank you. <clears throat> Let me move forward. Uh, hi, everyone. My name is Sam Zarifi. I'm Human Rights Watch's Washington advocate. I'm the spokesperson for the organization in Washington. But before that, and until fairly recently, I was the director of um, Human Rights Watch's research in Asia. And part of that, of course, was uh, dealing with, with conflict situations, of which Asia has many. I'm just kind of curious to know how many of you here uh, knew about Nepal's civil war. Okay, most of you are lying. I'm convinced of that. But otherwise, I'm very happy to know that uh, this is such a well-informed audience. Well, this was a civil war that began in the 90s and, and began spiraling out of control in 2001. It pitted 
Uh, it was a very old school civil war. On the one hand, you had uh, a monarchy, which was uh, uh, very old fashioned, and on the other side, you had Maoists. And so this was a civil war of a pre end of Cold War era. In 2001, it, things got much more uh, complicated because the level of violence rose, the military got directly involved. And in 2005, uh, things got very complicated when the king of Nepal overthrew his own puppet government. This is something we see more and more now in South Asia where governments overthrow themselves. Uh, but one of the things that the king did immediately is he began arresting uh, all political activists, all journalists, and human rights activists. So Human Rights Watch works in about 90 countries, including Nepal, and our work is intensely testimony-driven. Our reports tend to be heavily footnoted, slightly academic and pedantic, and note not that there's anything wrong with being an academic, <laughs> being a former academic, but our, our reports are really driven by uh, uh, trying to find what's happening on the ground and getting information from the victims and the witnesses who saw things firsthand. And the way we do that is only by being able to work with uh, uh, activists like Mandira, activists who are working on the ground, local activists who have access, who have information, and who uh, collaborate with us in getting that information out to the larger world. Occasionally, we play another role, which is what we ended up doing in Nepal, which is trying to protect the activists with whom we collaborate. And part of what we did in Nepal immediately after the coup was to try to go there and physically interpose ourselves between the activists and uh, military units that were presumably going to come and arrest them. Uh, after that in, in immediate intense period, we started providing more and more support to these uh, two groups, especially Mandira's group, who was working throughout Nepal, trying to get information from outside the capital. And, uh, you know, they would tell us what they wanted us to raise, and we would try to raise it in Washington and London and Brussels and Geneva. And Mandira and her colleagues would send us the information and eventually themselves come out and try to uh, bring international pressure. So this was a very good kind of collaboration between Human Rights Watch and local groups and something uh, which ended up being very successful in Nepal because we created enough space, and Mandira will go into some of the details, uh, that something miraculous happened. Uh, there was a people's movement, as, as you mentioned, a revolution, where suddenly hundreds of thousands of people came to the streets and they said, we really don't want the king and we don't really want the Maoists, and we're sick of the civil war, and we demand a peace process. And so for a, a period, there was real, real hope in Nepal, and this was a real example of what was possible when civil society was allowed to operate. Last year in November, a peace uh, document was signed, and a peace process uh, was begun, and we had all very, very high hopes that we were going to see the beginning of something wonderful in Nepal. But since then, uh, a lot of the promises that the parties had made to the Nepali community, to the victims who had suffered so much through the Civil War, were not met, were not satisfied. And so we've seen an incredible lack of legitimacy for the peace process, an incredible lack of confidence. And so actually, today, we're, we're at a place where the peace process is under severe pressure. It's really uh, come under at great risk. and 
the work of people like Mandira continues to be incredibly important, not just because the defense of human rights is, is something that's uh, simply complying with the law and, and is correct in and of itself, but also, and it's no small thing, because it's very clear that protecting and defending human rights in Nepal will have very immediate and beneficial impact on the political process and will, will allow the political process to move forward. But it's really thanks to the bravery of, of people like Mandira, who uh, is, is tough and feisty and has uh, stared down quite a number of military uh, units in her own time, uh, that this peace process has happened. And I'm very, very happy to, to introduce Mandira and uh, turn the microphone over to her. I think seeing here all the, uh, the friends, I just uh, felt sharing that uh, each of us can be human rights defenders. Um, many people really ask and uh, tell that what a bravery that you have, you know, why you work in this kind of field, what promotes you and all. But I think uh, each of us can be a sort of human rights defender. Human rights defender is a sort of person like you who are sitting here, but they uh, sometimes, you know, we work in a very extraordinary kind of situation. We are not extraordinary human being, but just the situation that we function is sometimes extraordinary. Um, Siam has already set out the sort of context in which um, we uh, we operate, and I'm also very pleased to to see the the uh, number of hands which were raised here, and I'm sure most of you have been to trekking uh, in Nepal. Um, it's it's a wonderful country. Uh, a lot of people really uh, knows Nepal by the place, the best place for for trekking. Um, beautiful uh, uh, country, a uh, very peaceful country where Buddha was born, uh, where all these uh, mountains are, are, are there. But in, in, in that country, uh, as Sam mentioned, we also had very violent kind of uh, conflict, um, which caused the life of more than 15,000 Nepalese. Uh, thousands of them are still disappeared. Uh, thousands of people were tortured, women were raped, and illegally detained. Uh, the legacy of those past human rights violations uh, are really haunting us, and those survivors uh, are still uh, struggling for, for their lives. Uh, in April last year, uh, we had this people's uh, movement because when the major political parties and the Maoists agreed to uh, have uh, a sort of agreement to move uh, a, 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 camp, a sort of movement against the the king, uh, and um, you know uh, force a sort of unity uh, for the uh, the peace process. Uh, that gave a sort of hope to the people. So people really felt that there is possible to uh, bring the Maoists into peace process uh, and also to overthrow the autocratic regime that we had. So that really uh, helped to uh, you know, think people positively, uh, which really led hundreds of thousands of Nepalese coming into the street 
demanding for, for democracy. Relatively, it was very peaceful uh, kind of movement that really led a sort of peace process uh, in, in the country. The uh, then uh, major political parties and the Maoist really signed peace agreement. Uh, uh, the roadmap that they had put forward was that they, uh, uh, the Maoist will also join the, uh, the parliament and then the government. They will draft the new constitution. Uh, the comprehensive peace agreement that they had signed with the major political parties will remain as one of the annexed of the interim constitution. And then there will be elections for the drafting of the new constitution. That will set up the the frame of new uh, Nepal. And people were very uh, hopeful. We are, very, uh, we are still uh, very ho hopeful. But unfortunately, things didn't move as people really expected. Uh, and I, there, must, uh, there, there are different reasons why the peace process at this stage is in a very uh, critical kind of uh, stage. But one of the reasons why the peace process is in crisis, why we couldn't hold the elections, and why the rule of law situation is deteriorating and human rights violations are uh, continue is also because of the failure of the parties to address uh, uh, some of the issues that we have been raising, such as the issue of uh, addressing the, uh, the uh, human rights violations, providing justice for the victims. Uh, uh, they had promised that within 60 days of uh, signing of this peace agreement, the whereabouts of those who were disappeared were made uh, public. But that didn't happen. People really wait and wait, but that didn't really happen. And one of the biggest problems that Nepal uh, has, and people really wanted to see some kind of visible changes in the military, because that, that is the institution historically which is a sort of loyal to the, the monarch, and Nepal is moving ahead for Republican uh, uh, settings, and people really want to see uh, uh, things being moved uh, towards that direction. However, uh, the security sector reforms, that's what they, they had called, uh, did not really uh, take place. One of the promises that was there in the, in the comprehensive peace agreement is that some of the Maoist cadres will also be incorporated in, in the military army and the mil military and the military Nepalese army and the Nepalese army will put under the civilian oversight. But uh, the things didn't really move uh, like that. The, uh, the recent example is that the prime minister uh, who is also a sort of head uh, uh, you know, of, of the, the military in a way. He is also a defense, uh, he takes the responsibility of the defense ministry. He ordered uh, the uh, chief of the army staff to downsize the, the number of the military by 50, of the palace by 50%. But it didn't happen. The chief of the, the army staff didn't really uh, observe the, the order of, of the, uh, the prime minister. And that clearly shows, and it was very apparent, that uh, the military is still not under the civilian oversight, and it is still uh, uh, sort of uh, loyal to the, to the monarchy. And people really think this is the biggest problem in, in you know, having a sort of elections in the country and declaring a kind of, uh, you know, Republican uh, in, in, in the country. Similarly, the, the Comprehensive Peace Agreement also, uh, you know, uh, uh, provided that there will be Truth and Reconciliation Commission to deal the, uh, with the legacy of the past human rights violations. It also didn't happen. The, the whole process was so untransparent. Uh, there was no human rights agenda in, in this whole uh, peace process. Uh, I, I must say that I come from a background and I work for a human rights organization called Advocacy Forum, which was set up in 2001 by a group of uh, lawyers, where we document cases of human rights violations, focusing on uh, extrajudicial killings, 
forced disappearances, rape of women, torture. And we have uh, documented hundreds of cases of extrajudicial killings, um, disappearances, rape of women in detention, uh, and, and torture. But we haven't been able to bring even a single perpetrator to justice yet. Um, it is not because the victims really don't want or the human rights organizations or the lawyers are not effective enough. It is all because of the system, the structures that we have really uh, harbors this culture of uh, impunity. And really this is a sort of uh, uh, problem that, uh, that really impinge the whole peace, uh, peace uh, process because there are a number of armed groups coming up in different districts uh, in Nepal with, with their demands uh, because the message that we have sent across, the state has sent, sent across is that you can do whatever you want to do, you can take arms, you know, uh, engage in human rights violations, but can get away very easily. You don't have to be accountable for the things that you do. Rule of law situation is very, very uh, weak now. I, uh, I was just reading the papers while uh, coming here. Uh, there, I mean, uh, there was this uh, one of the journalists who used to report uh, sort of atrocities in, in his village, particularly at that time when we were still in, in, in the war, the atrocities committed by the, the Maoist were, was abducted by, by the, the, the Maoist. And we didn't know the whereabouts of, of that journalist, the, the whole uh, uh, um, human rights community and everybody in, in Nepal is really demanding uh, to make the whereabouts of that uh, journalist public. But uh, yesterday the Maoist really uh, organized a sort of a press conference stating that he was murdered. The next day he was uh, uh, abducted. And there is no accountability for this kind of uh, incidences. Uh, so this is the biggest threat to the peace process. And people really think that when we raise the issue of accountability or human rights violations uh, or, or this uh, impunity or intangible way, uh, you know, bringing perpetrators to justice, that may hamper the peace process. That is how uh, the government and the political parties really pushed the agenda of human rights back. But in fact, in the context of Nepal, by failing to address the, the human rights violations, really failing to provide justice for, for the victims, the peace process is in a crisis. So, um, uh, we have been uh, really, uh, uh, you know, raising the, the uh, issues of, uh, of uh, justice for the victims. It is not just uh, just providing a sort of uh, um, some kind of, you know, it is a sense uh, or the satisfaction that people really have to uh, uh, enjoy because always Nepal has all these protections of human rights in paper. Uh, but that never reflected uh, uh, in, in the practice, whether that be the case of uh, women or Dalits or ethnic uh, minorities, uh, you know, in, in the constitutions, in the laws, the, the treaties that Nepal ratifies, all the basic protections are there, but it never reflected uh, in, in, in practice. So really addressing the, the cases of human rights uh, violations and really ensuring that the, the kind of atrocities that n will not happen in the future again, the, only the peace process can be in a, in, in a track uh, uh, in uh, Nepal. Um, I don't want to go into detail. Maybe uh, I will uh, share some of our experiences, how we uh, work, the kind of uh, uh, th sort of threat uh, that uh, human rights defenders, the lawyers defending for human rights have to take, the victims, the witnesses, simply because 
of their voice for justice, you know, the level of threat that they have to go through. You know, uh, later on when, when you have uh, questions, I will be happy uh, to, uh, to share with, with you that. Uh, but I think one thing that I really wanted to share with you um, all is that people here uh, really take uh, rule of law, basic concepts uh, of, of human rights, the protection of human rights as granted. But in our parts of, of the world, I mean, people have to pay the highest price, even their lives, for the basic protection of their rights and, and to see the rule of law. Uh, I, I would like to stop here, um, and I'll be happy to get more questions later. So I'd like to throw the floor open to questions. I have some, but I'll, I'll save them until a bit later. Just on that point of rule of law, um, before I went to Nepal, I was reading about a number of cases in which um, the judges had granted habeas corpus to people who were imprisoned. And at the door of the courtroom after these people were released, they were rearrested by the police, rearrested by the army, and disappeared again. So it was that blatant, the disregard for rule of law in Nepal, you know, only a, sort of a year ago. Um, anyway, please, um, any questions, and then we can have a further discussion with our speakers. paralysis uh, of response on the part of African states, but I think not just African states, but it's just actually a global paralysis uh, driven by the propaganda that Mugabe has been able to employ so effectively of characterizing the governance crisis in Zimbabwe as uh, signifying a bilateral dispute between Zimbabwe and Britain as a former colonial master supported by Western governments as well as the, the, the U.S. It has uh, had the effect of, um, you know, <coughs> creating a victim perception that he is a victim of uh, a Western agenda. And then the effect has been that African heads of states and even African intelligent, you know, the intelligentsia in Africa as well as um, 
ordinary people, once they, they see him as a victim, they then feel that maybe there is more to the eye than just the complaints of, of, of human rights violations. And then on the other side, the ability of uh, Western governments to be forceful in their condemnation, but also even in actions or interventions that they can take, they've now begun to temper it on the basis that if we overdo it, we are likely to then be seen as in fact uh, attacking Mugabe simply because he's been taking land from the whites, white farmers, and that he has stood up to Britain and to the US. So, so it creates a, a, a huge dilemma for all of us, especially for, for, for human rights defenders in Zimbabwe, but also the ordinary people who are suffering the brunt of the dictatorship. Um, so naturally we would expect African leaders, if they are sincere about being able to craft African solutions for what they see as African problems, then we would expect them to take decisive uh, or visible, uh, credible steps. Um, for example, right now South Africa is saying that it has been mandated by the Southern African states to mediate a solution in the Zimbabwean crisis. This took place in March after Mugabe brazenly used you know, the police to brutalize the opposition, civil society, human rights defenders, but also lawyers who were trying to represent these people. And the response of SADC was to call for a heads of state summit at which they then crafted a mandate to say they wanted South Africa to take up leadership. Since much up to now is civil society, what we've been doing is to say we needed to see some specific milestones um, with very specific you know, deliverables and time frames that certain things needed to be done in terms of restoration of the rule of law, repeal of repressive legislation, dismantling of the infrastructure of violence uh, that the state has used so well to paralyze uh, a response in Zimbabwe. But sadly, South Africa has not been able to, to do it. What they've only done is to engage the political parties and the most visible outcome of that process has been the amendment of our constitution for the 18th term. The Zimbabwean constitution has been amended 18 times in 26 years, 27 years. And uh, so it's the most amended constitution. And most of those amendments have had the effect of consolidating power for ZANU-PF rather than increasing the democratic space or increasing the, the, the basis on which you can get human rights in the Bill of Rights. So, so we are very disappointed by, by what South Africa is doing. Um, we don't think they've done enough. And the African leadership, to the extent that they get paralyzed because of a perception of an ideology of pan-Africanism, which, which, which ideology we don't agree that pan-Africanism means uh, governing your country in a manner where people lose jobs, in a manner where you, uh, you, you, you deploy the police like what happened two years ago to destroy 700,000 know, homes for 700,000 people. So all those things are completely anti-African. <coughs> and and we, we are building you know, networks with civil society groups in Africa so that we can really expose these serious human rights violations for what they are. And I really think that the rest of the world should not feel paralyzed to continue sticking to principle around the very standards that have taken so long to develop in order to protect human dignity as well as to create a basis for sustainable peace in the world. Thank you. I should just point out what, 
One very interesting thing about this, though, is that actually South Africa's record on non-African issues is also atrocious. Uh, I mean, the two countries that one normally associates with leading the anti-colonial movement, South Africa and India, have terrible human rights records. India's record at the UN is next literally to China's. There's, there's no country that has voted as consistently against human rights movements by, by the United Nations. And so, for instance, one of the most disappointing things with South Africa was when there was a discussion last year about Burma, a country which is clearly not part of Pan-Africanism, it was South Africa that blocked the, the uh, Security Council from, from uh, hearing the situation in, in, in Burma. And you know this was completely surprising, but well, surprising to the outside world, but, but unfortunately this has been a very consistent trend for both India and, uh, and, uh, and South Africa. So th this, this, this myth of anti-colonialism and anti-imperialism uh, is a very useful uh, political tool, but for a human rights framework, it's, it's utterly fatuous. encourage some other questions and please also say who you are if you're a human rights <coughs> center student or whatever. Yes, there are two questions here. We'll take them together. Could you first? Uh, my name is Regarding the difficulties that the human rights defenders face um, on, on the ground, uh, yes, this is true. Sometimes, um, um, you know, we you have to take your life at, 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 at risk. Um, in, in our situation as well, a um, number of times uh, we had to relocate our colleagues. We had to leave our uh, home and stay with somebody else's house. Uh, most of the uh, times in the uh, when the coup uh, was staged by the the king, uh, we used to be monitored uh, all the time. When we used to go to our office or, or the meetings or back home, and I remember those days when I had to turn like back several times just to make sure I'm not followed, you know, just to get the the house uh, safely. Um, 
And yes, the, this, uh, this is the sort of price that uh, one has to pay uh, in any kind of uh, sort of oppressive regimes uh, that you have, and you, you speak about justice, rule of law, and human rights. But in any case, uh, those who were not defending for human rights or just wanted to be uh, in a peaceful uh, uh, you know, uh, manner were also targeted. All those villages, uh, villagers, uh, you know, more than 15,000 Nepalese who have lost their lives, they were not necessarily human rights defenders, but they were killed. Uh, thousands of people are still uh, disappeared. They were not necessarily human rights defenders, but they still uh, disappeared. Um, thousands of uh, people were tortured, um, uh, detained, uh, you know, illegally. Uh, not necessarily they were defending uh, the human rights. But uh, in that kind of context, even if you are uh, uh, not uh, defending your rights or others' rights, you are targeted. So why don't you use your time and energy really to defend the rights? And even if you have to die, why don't you die in a peaceful way? You know, really feeling yourself very proud. I really feel that I work very uh, closely with the victims of human rights violations. And a lot of people really ask me, how do you get these courage? I really f uh, get the courage from the victims because look uh, at these people, even at that stage, the level of courage that they have. I, I, am, I, uh, I have been working with uh, a woman. Uh, of course, I have been working with hundreds of, of, of cases, but I always remember a case uh, which I'm still working on. is a case of this um, woman um, her daughter, 15 years old daughter, was uh, picked up by the military in February 2004 from, from her house. And she was arrested by the military because they wanted to arrest the mother because mother witnessed the extrajudicial killings of two young girls in the village. Um, they told the, the father, the husband of this woman and the father of this girl, that uh, to pick her daughter up from the barrack, he has to come with his uh, wife next day. So next day, uh, the father went to the, uh, the, uh, uh, the barrack with, with his wife. You know, both of these parents were in, in, in the military barrack asking about their daughter, but the military denied to, to acknowledge the uh, arrest and detention of, of the girl. The girl um, uh, went disappeared. They never acknowledged that she was uh, ever arrested by them and detained into, into the, their barracks. And the family members since then have been persistently looking one barrack after another, one detention center after another, one government institutions after another, but they persistently deny the arrest and detention. You can imagine the pain of the father, you know, who witnessed the arrest of, of the girl, the daughter, uh, couldn't do anything. He, he was feeling that I couldn't prevent that, and now you have to live with this, uh, you know, lies that your daughter was never existed. Um, but the family, they, they persistently uh, took the case up, and we have been, uh, you know, with the courage of, of the family, of course, we uh, were able to mobilize the sort of pressure the, that the military accepted later on that, yes, we picked up the girl from, from the house. And, but they made a story that she was killed on the, on the way to the military barrack because she attempted to escape from the security forces. We challenged that. Of course, the family member didn't really uh, believe the lie that uh, the military was saying. Um, we persistently raised the case. Uh, we mobilized national and international pressure. And then the military came up with another story saying that, oh, yes, we detained the girl in the barrack, uh, but she was found dead next 
day. So we found three officers guilty for not observing the proper procedures after they found the girl being dead in, 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 in the barrack. And we, we demanded the thorough investigation on the case. Families stood up uh, for this, and they had to leave the village where they, they uh, uh, you know, used to live because of the pressure that they, they had from the uh, military. But we forced, we fought to the extent that the military had to accept how she died. In fact, she was uh, tortured to death in, in, in military barrack. And the, the family members went to the uh, uh, police demanding the criminal investigations in the case. And these cases is a sort of the biggest challenge in the authority in Nepal, which is still going on. Uh, these uh, three uh, officers are not uh, arrested yet. They are still uh, uh, there. But the, the price the government has to pay for, for this case is quite heavy. And it sets the, the, the example. And this woman really gives the courage to so many of others uh, in fighting for, for justice. And you can also see the trend, how the, the, a, the number of violations went down when she started really a sort of uh, you know, standing up uh, for justice. So standing up for the justice is a protection rather than a sort of risk. Um, I think before Arnold kind of expands on, on uh, your question, um, I just wanted also to throw in the fact that, yes, when you talk about ideology, it is something more than ideology. Um, when you look at the Southern African development community, um, you have what we could term the hardliners. And then you have those who consider Zimbabwe a huge problem. Um, you've mentioned the issue of refugees. Um, there's about between one to two million Zimbabweans currently living in South Africa at the moment, and they've fled the political and the economic crisis. You have about uh, 300,000 in Botswana. And I don't know, we can't even, we don't know the numbers in Zambia and other parts of Southern Africa. But when you look at the way the SADC is composed, you look at the problems in Angola, a highly repressive government in Angola. You have a highly repressive government in Swaziland. So within that context, they recognize that any kind of condemnation of Zimbabwe also reflects upon them and that they could be under scrutiny next. So that's also a problem. And then you have the smaller governments like Lesotho and Botswana who are relatively stable, but they do not have the clout within the development, Southern African development community to express their concerns. Um, I was in South Africa in, in March and April soon after the 50 opposition leaders were brutally beaten up by the police. And I spoke to the Lesotho High Commissioner in South Africa, and I spoke to the Tanzanian High Commissioner, and they did express their concern. There is a lot of concern within the Southern African development community about what's going on in Zimbabwe. It is having an effect on their own countries. It's having an effect on their relationships with the EU, for instance. But it's how they deal with it. They do not want to see SADC polarized. They do not want to see a huge division over Zimbabwe. That's always been the issue. Um, so I just wanted to kind of throw that um, your way, just so that you have a bit of a uh, context within which um, the discussion within which the discussion on Zimbabwe is taking place, um, and also to highlight to you that it's, ideology is the perfect tool. Um, Sam has already highlighted that it's a perfect tool to use um, because the, some of the issues are so complex, and there are other factors that actually prevent this kind of discussion on Zimbabwe um, on the continent. There's very little for me to, to, to add after this erudite uh, submission from, from Tiseke. Tiseke is, is the researcher on Zimbabwe, and she's, based, she, she's from Malawi, but she understands very, very well 
what's happening within our geopolitical uh, region. And um, other than that, to say what she has said, what you have said, and what I have said are some of the reasons, but obviously it's not an exhaustive list of the reasons why this world finds itself unable to deal with the crisis. You know, the, the examples of the failure of the multilateral institutions to work, of countries to respond to situations of crisis, they're not just confined to Zimbabwe. Uh, I think it's a mixture of failure to act, but also sometimes acting in an incorrect manner in some other countries where there are interventions, like, for example, I think what has happened in Iraq. So, so at the end of the day, I think the world, for some reason, is finds itself unable to act in some cases or able to act but wrongly in others. If you look at Africa, Rwanda, for example, everyone knew that we had a disaster that was building up and, and the genocide was fairly predictable. But again, there was that paralysis. Um, so, so I'm not trying to shatter people's confidence about the, the, the or, or to suggest that fate sometimes is it that certain people need to suffer for others. But I think uh, what is important, which then answers to this first question about if it's so tough, then how do you encourage people to be involved? Uh, I think you just need, as, at a personal level, to have a sense of purpose, I think a sense of conviction about what you think is fair, what you think is just, what, you know, this, this I hope I won't be seen as uh, introducing religious intolerance, but there is something in the Bible that says, do unto others as you would want them to do unto yourself. You know, if, if what you think you're going to do to some people or not to do to some people, you don't, want, you don't want them to do it or not to do it to you, I think it becomes a very good guiding principle in terms of how you relate at a personal level and how you then use your own wisdom, your own knowledge, your own expertise to work with and through others to, to, to get to what you think is a good vision, a good value system for society. So I think it starts with yourself and it does not start with looking at everyone else. And, and I think for most people who find themselves having to work um, for humanity, it's, it's really a strong personal conviction first. And then you don't even realize you're working. And, and it's really a choice. <laughs> it becomes a way of life rather than a career. So I think if at the personal level you then say, I want to be a human rights lawyer or someone who is going to work in a certain area, you might find that if it's purely career-driven, you won't have as much impact as if it's personal conviction-driven where you then align your expertise and your skills and knowledge to be very consistent and in close proximity to what you think is a strong sense of justice about how humanity must, must, must be. So it's a bit philosophical, but, but, but that's exactly what it is. So, so it becomes a very strong motivator because it's not about money, it's not about, it's not about wealth, it's about what you think is right and, and how you want to live your life. So I think that's the human rights lawyering. Thank you. We're sort of running out of time, unfortunately. That was such an inspiring talk about what motivates human rights lawyers. I think we're really privileged to hear that from both of these people. But um, 
Do we have time for one quick question? Is it is it a quick one? Um, uh, it'll have to be a quick question, a quick answer, because we have to stop at 1.30. Thank you. There's always room to improve in many things in life, including the way we report on what we think are successes. And um, the, you know, grassroots human rights activists like Waza, those are the people who then motivate us as lawyers for human rights to begin to have a feel that you need to be directing your expertise to equip and work with through and through those people to achieve what they essentially believe is a good vision for our country. So, and th that's where the inspiration comes from, and that's where I think the issue of choice comes from. And, and whether they, they get publicity or not, um, it's, it doesn't really affect, especially at the domestic level. But I think in terms of generating a, a hope for the international community, and the fact that maybe it's not a hopeless case, and, and uh, it, it would be important, I think, for these successes for somehow to be, to be reported. But again, dictators are very clear about uh, the impact of, uh, of, of, of free media in terms of giving people hope and therefore generating capacity to, to, to get more grassroots communities involved and mobilized. So as a result, you know, the truth immediately suffers once there's dictatorship and then the free media is shut uh, so, so, so whilst you can get this news here, I, I might actually be right to say that people from this part of the world may know more about what's happening in Zimbabwe than people in Zimbabwe itself because of the fact that it's a climate where it's blocked completely and it's a closed society. So, so, so I can't agree with you more that media is important, but maybe it's more important at the domestic level and how to get it there becomes a real issue. Um, yeah, I, I agree with uh, what Arnold says. And also, I think in, in the number of uh, occasions I have practically uh, experienced how the media can also play a role in protecting not only the human rights defenders, but also the victims and witnesses as well in number of incidences uh, that, and cases that we worked in. Uh, so media, in fact, has very powerful role um, to, to play in, in this uh, section. In fact, the case that I um, shared uh, earlier uh, is really a sort of case that symbolizes the, uh, the disappearance, the problem of the disappearance of the families uh, of the disappearance really faced in Nepal. Uh, was also There also we, we got certain support uh, of the media, for example, uh, and that significantly helped 
the the families uh, to, uh, to be protected, you know, because that really raised the the, the profile of, of, of the, the the families. Uh, and also, sometimes it's, um, it's it's difficult because we also don't understand why, despite all those sort of things, uh, um, you know, media don't really cover the kind of stories uh, that uh, uh, we really uh, want to see in, in, in the press. But this is something that uh, I'm, you know, wondering as well, and I would like to know more, you know. Um, Unfortunately, we have to stop. I haven't asked my questions, but I think that the speakers will be around for a few minutes afterwards, so we can come and ask them questions, or maybe outside. I don't know.